When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. The Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and the FCS. Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you this week. Eric, back from a flu bug. Glad to hear you're feeling better, bud. Joe, I appreciate it. Thanks to all the people who, you know, shot me a message and checked up on me. Those of you who are regular listeners of this podcast didn't hear my voice and some people elsewhere really appreciate it. You know, for as much as we travel, Joe, uh, Mm -hmm. doing this gig, it is probably a wonder that you don't pick up more uh, flu bugs and otherwise. But yeah, you know, I've, I've been I've been pretty lucky. I mean, the past five years, I can't think of very many times i've gotten sick if any so um maybe that was kind of you know payback for all the times i've gotten lucky but yeah that one that that was a pretty intense one so for everyone out there i guess this is my disclaimer i am not a big flu shot person joe i don't know if you are i've never seen the benefit in like getting sick to prevent getting sick however whether it's a flu shot or just you know taking regular precautions washing your hands and being safe and all that stuff please do so because this mm-hmm. Blue was pretty intense. Absolutely. Yeah. I have not traveled too much this season. I mean, you know, uh, when I got COVID immediately following CUSA media days, that was kind of, of like, you know what? I think I can uh, scale that aspect of it this year. I, I forgot that you, you did. Um, yeah. 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 Didn't, uh, didn't feel too good, but Feeling a lot better now and uh, ready to talk some CUSA football. So let's kick things off with uh, some Western Kentucky and Rice talk. Uh, Hilltoppers win that one 45 to 10. Decent day for the offense. You could argue a better day for the Western Kentucky defense as they force six turnovers in a win that prevents Rice from securing bowl eligibility with uh, two opportunities left to do so. But they are against significantly, uh, well, I shouldn't say significantly better teams, but against. Uh, well, very tough matchups with UTSA and North Texas. Uh, Austin Reed in this one, uh, three touchdown passes, one interception, only threw the ball 33 times, which is a little uh, lower than what you uh, tend to expect from this Western Kentucky offense. But they found a nice balance there with uh, the running game as well. 118 total yards in that department between uh, seven ball carriers there. But yeah, I think you got to be happy if you're Tyson Helton, you get to seven and four, um, stay in the hunt really for that CUSA title game berth. Uh, North Texas also lost, which we'll get to. So it's still possible there. And yeah, if you're Rice, you know, it's not the fact that you lost, but if you're going to turn the ball over six times, I mean, that's a way to basically ensure that you're you're not taking a step forward here. No, uh, Joe, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of if you're Rice. Kind of disappointing because obviously they are looking to get into bowl contention as well, now sitting at five and five. But I just talked about this. Shout out to the folks down there in 97.7 Russ in Louisiana. I know you just did that radio spot, you know, helping me out there since I had the flu. Uh, I talked about the fact that if you give Western Kentucky additional opportunities, <laughs> that, that that's not going to help your chances, your causes with a win. So as far as the uh, Hilltoppers concerned, pretty much what you'd expect when they get all those additional opportunities. Solid day for Austin Reed passing solid day on the ground as well. Um, just uh, Joe, I just turned in my first Bolitnikoff award ballot um, as a, you know, a first time voter definitely had Malachi Corley on there as well. Got to give uh, some love to the G five guys there in my, uh, I actually have a couple G five guys. We got Tyron Smith from UTEP, um, Ali Jennings from Old Dominion. So uh, I figured I'd give them a quick shot at here. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. as far as the Hilltoppers are concerned, uh, you know, really what you got, I think you got to be impressed with Joe's a defensive performance as well. Again, while Rice did turn the ball over several times, you know, those turnovers were pretty much initiated by the West Kentucky defense and especially a Rice offense that had kind of been surging in the past few weeks. You know, we saw what they did against Louisiana Tech. 
via Luke McCaffrey and Brad Rosner, two of the more dynamic targets in Conference USA. So all in all, a great day for the tops. And for the Owls, uh, they'll be uh, they'll have two shots to get that sixth win, which again, uh, definitely you know would be a solid year for them. But you, you would have liked to seen a better performance uh, in Bowling Green. And back on the Western Kentucky side, can't let it go without acknowledging the performance of Jalen Hall here. He had seven catches, 102 yards, two touchdown catches, and also had a punt return for a touchdown. So a little bit of athleticism on display there uh, for the young man from Macomb, Michigan. And at 6'3", 180, I mean, Western's got a, a decent little stable of wide receivers this year, just in terms of, you know, size and and measurements. Um, so, you know, they, they did a really nice job putting this class together, and it's a shame not all of them could uh, remain healthy this year all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but listen, I guess it's it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you mentioned yeah. a shame that some of those guys couldn't stay healthy, but also you, you at least have the depth there at receiver mm-hmm. for Western Kentucky, which they're able to make that work as well. So, you know, they get valuable experience now, and we'll see how that transitions into 23. Yeah, because if they even bring a handful of those guys back, I think they'll be in good shape. On the other side of the 100 miles of hate rivalry, let's talk about that. Uh, Middle Tennessee, 24 to 14 over Charlotte. Not an altogether unexpected result as the Blue Raiders improved to 5 and 5. Charlotte drops to 2 and 9. Uh, Frank Pizan, they get him back in this game, and clearly his presence was felt. Uh, 17 carries for 84 yards and two touchdowns in this game as the Blue Raiders get 103 yards total. Uh, Nick Vadiato got back in the game here. Uh, 14 carries for 13 yards there. Uh, he started a quarterback in replace uh, in reprieve of Chase Cunningham, 22 of 29 through the air for 203 yards and an interception uh, in this game. So, uh, you know, a solid day for him filling in for the injured Cunningham or uh, yeah, for the injured Cunningham. Um, and, uh, you know, four fumbles for Vadiato, though. So can't, you know, can't give too much praise there for him. Um, did uh, did lose one of those. So uh, certainly could have been worse for the Blue Raiders. And um, they've got two more opportunities to get to bowl eligibility. And you got to think they'll win at least one of those. Well, yeah, I mean, for Middle Tennessee, they do have FIU down the stretch. So, I mean, that's probably the game that you're looking at if you're a middle fan and saying, okay, we hope we're going to get that one. With that being said, obviously, it's going to depend on how the Panthers uh, look down the stretch as well. But I I think you talked about it a bit, right? You know, maybe the best you could expect from Nick Vadiato, obviously. It's almost kind of deja vu, Joe, because we saw Nick Vadiato down the stretch of last year when Chase Cunningham got banged up and he was able to keep things together and, and, you know, really help Middle Tennessee qualify for a bowl game last year. But with that being said, I mean, Nick still has his, I I don't want to say his deficiencies, but he's still an inexperienced, you know, passer and also as you know we kind of talked about last year um a little bit unheralded and a smaller guy as well that's not to say you got to be 6'5 230 to play in the blue raider offense i think their last few quarterbacks asher o'hara and chase cunningham have shown that but yeah i mean this is a, a, about what you expected for 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 nick vadiato uh just a solid performance in a way to be able to help them pick up the victory as far as charlotte's concerned i i, I don't know i mean let me let me pose you in the form of a question you know i i this is the kind of the game i like to do um beginning of the year joe when we came into this season 10 point loss against a backup quarterback and Nick Vadiato, would that have felt like a disappointment or can we, you know, fast forward now 11 weeks into the year and say, all right, you know, maybe not quite as a disappointment. I, I don't know. I mean, kind of where I fall on it is the, the Niners issues have been offense this year. So I, I, I a little bit disappointed in the fact that you only put together 14 points. Sure. I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, on one hand, you did have a really nice day from some of these receivers. Grant Dubose, nine catches for 112 yards. Uh, Elijah Spencer, six catches for 55 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Dubose had a touchdown as well, I should say. I mean, I think you can say this whole season really has been a disappointment for uh, Charlotte. I mean, when you look at the you know total offensive production, uh, 300 yards on the ground, that's going to be tough to come back from, even if you you know out uh, outpace them in terms of that category. But if you're not finishing drives, that's 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 a big frustration there. Um, but you know, for MTSU, I mean. Uh, it's one of those things where on any given day, I think they can beat anybody, uh, pretty much anybody in the league. But at the same time, I, I said this with Kevin too, they're the most consistently inconsistent. Um, and they have been over the last couple of years, a lot of talent, obviously, but you just never know what, uh, what team you're going to get when you play them. Uh, you're referring to middle Tennessee. That is. 
Yes. Yeah. I'm saying with Charlotte, like it's a disappointing day for them, but also middle Tennessee looks, looks solid as well, but they very well could have came out and laid an egg as we've seen them do a few times this year. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's a, that's a very fair point, you know, especially the blue Raiders are such a tough team to figure out, Joe, we've talked about it for years now, you know, if they can get rushing production, that's going to significantly enhance their chances to win. Um, what I'm going to focus on here and, and, you know, probably want to run this by you one last time for a transition, Joe, is this defensively. I think that's the thing I've been most impressed by. The fact that they lost Greg Gray to the portal. They lost Reed Blankenship to the NFL. Trey Fluellen and um, Teljic Ross that, you know, we know Coach Stocks will talk about Teljic Ross. We had him on the podcast earlier this year. DeCorian Patterson as well. Uh, want to shout him out. Those guys have really stepped up, you know, and are they Greg Great and Reed Blankenship? No, right? You know, those are two guys who have been amongst the best in CUSA in the safety position, at the safety position for a while. But they're formidable enough against CUSA opponents. I think that has to be commended. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there. I think with Charlotte, like if you're two and nine already, like I think we can safely say, you know, I think we could safely say weeks ago that uh, this season was kind of a wash. But, um, you know, if you're losing uh, if you're losing games like this, then uh, that's that's kind of your sign of, of where they are as a program at the moment. Uh, UTSA beating Louisiana Tech 51 to seven. Not too much to say there. Easy win for the Roadrunners, as we kind of thought it would be. Uh, three different core, uh, three different quarterbacks get into the game for Louisiana Tech in this one. Landry Liddy uh, played the majority of the game. Uh, no Parker McNeil here. 14 to 26 for Liddy, 138 yards, a touchdown, and two interceptions. Um, only 112 yards. Uh, net in terms of the passing game for the texters and on the UTSA side uh, a lot of scoring on the rushing side of things five touchdowns there Kavorian Barnes had two Brandon Brady had two and of course Justin Rodriguez the sophomore gets in there for uh, one as well Uh, Barnes 11 carries for 103 yards to kind of lead that group there and the UTSA receiving core stepping up in the absence of DeCorian Clark as well. Joshua Cephas, seven catches for 81 yards and a touchdown. Uh, that was the only passing touchdown of the day, obviously. And then Zachary Franklin, three catches for 23 yards in uh, in that group as well. Completions to eight different receivers in this game. So we know UTSA can spread the ball around and, and showing that uh, in a game against a, a tech team that we know is uh, kind of lacking in terms of depth and uh in terms of, uh, well, let's let's be honest, in terms of talent compared to the rest of uh, the former CUSA West. Yeah, I'm going to be quick here, Joe, on this one. I mean, Tech, I, yeah, are they lacking in talent a little bit? Absolutely. I think some of it is just first year playing in a new scheme. I know we've talked about that a little bit, but they had their chances this year. You know, the FIU game was winnable. Um, believe they had a, a game against, uh, oh, man, I'm forgetting who the opponent was. I want to say it was Rice that was winnable as well. I mean, they had you know, some opportunities, right? I mean, FIU, yeah, FIU and Rice, those are the two games that if either of those go your way, they're looking at five and five and and being contention for a bowl, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, that's just kind of my synopsis on Louisiana Tech. Uh, For UTSA, this is the big thing for me. You, You talked about it. Uh, JT Clark goes down. Josh Cephas steps up. They still have Zachary Franklin. We'll talk about two other guys. Dan Dishman, reserve tight end, who I had a chance to see uh, get a score against FIU. He's someone who can play, obviously, with you know Oscar Cardenas uh, being you know a factor as well. Let's see what happens with him as far as you know his availability down the stretch. But Tyke Ogle Kellogg Joe is a guy who. For the past few years, it's kind of been on my radar. Big, tall guy, 6'5", 210, uh, very much a red zone target, you know, a sizable target. It seemed like he, uh, I don't want to say got lost in the shuffle, but he was a guy who maybe I was expecting to break out of the pack a little bit, maybe a couple years ago. Obviously, again, with, you know, JT Clark and and Zachary Franklin, those guys have kind of stepped up. But uh, with some of the injuries there, he's another guy to keep an eye on. As, as you talked about, the eight different receivers who Frank Harris connected with, uh, I think, you know, getting especially uh, a guy like Ogle Kellogg, who is as sizable of a target as he is, Joe, that's something to keep an eye on down the stretch. So, you know, as they contend for another CUSA title, 6-0 in conference, it, it just kind of shows the depth of the talent that Jeff Triller has there in San Antonio. 
For sure. And I mean, they secure a spot in the CUSA championship game with this win. They make it official. We kind of figured they would be there. And on the Louisiana Tech side, not to retread too much some of the stuff that folks heard me talk about with Kevin last week, but um, I think I made the exact same point about those two games against FIU and Rice. I think they're going to look back on uh, on those games at the end of this year and just be like, so close. You know, we were just a couple of plays away from getting back to bowl eligibility in the first year of Sonny Cumbie, which is certainly commendable. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think they're in good shape. I like the balance that they've struck between their run and the pass so far this year, especially considering the type of offenses that, uh, you know, Cumbie's kind of become used to running in the Big 12 and that sort of thing. But this year, I know they've dealt with uh, their share of injuries as well and and some quarterback reshuffling. But I think the future is bright and Rustin. But, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're down to basically your third string quarterback against uh, the best team in the league. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, you know, Louisiana Tech, you talked about it. We talked about it. Some of the opportunities that they had to pick up, you know, some wins. And again, those are just things that some of that stuff is chance. Some of that stuff is is luck. But I also do think some of that is a skill, you know, winning close ball games. And you talk about being down to a uh, third string quarterback. They definitely have had some injuries suffered. I mean, Landry Liddy's a promising prospect. Though. I will say that as, as mm-hmm. having seen him in person, he's definitely a, a promising player, but you have to think uh, if they have Parker McNeil, uh, maybe that at least helps them against FIU. Probably not in this game, but all in all, uh, interested, interested to see how Louisiana Tech closes out the year because, again, uh, if they can take you know a two-game win streak into next year, I think that puts them right at the top of the list of teams you want to keep an eye on heading into 23. Absolutely. I mean, I'm excited to see what Liddy turns into under the development of of a former quarterback like uh, Sonny Cumbie as well, someone who's uh, worked with some some decent quarterbacks at TCU and Texas Tech in the past. Uh, UAB, they beat North Texas 41-21 to in something of an upset. UAB stays alive in the bowl hunt as well. I don't know how much more we can say about the job that Dwayne McBride has done this year. I, I, I'll, I'll just say I put him on my All-America ballot. Uh, 21 carries for 121 or for 120 yards in this game, three touchdowns. Um, and I believe he has now broken the program record for uh, rushing touchdowns in a season as he gets up to 17. Yes, 17 rushing touchdowns this season for Dwayne McBride. That is a UAB program record. Uh, and then North Texas, I mean, if you look at their performance in this game, uh, Austin Ani, 15 of 32 for 159 yards and a touchdown here. Uh, rushing game never quite got going the way we're used to seeing it run um, 105 yards total between Ragsdale, Johnson, and Austin Ani in that one. Ani also ran a touchdown in. Johnson had one as well. Um, you know, so I, I think for this one, it's weird to see North Texas's defense struggle the way it did. Uh, they allow over 500 yards uh, to UAB, uh, 271 of those on the ground. And obviously, Dwayne McBride is who he is. So, I mean, you had to expect that they were going to make him a big part of the game plan here. Um, so, UAB, I think their conference title hopes are, are out the window. But North Texas actually still alive. They don't lock up the spot in the title game with this win. They still can. They're in control of their own destiny, thankfully, since they have that head-to-head win over Western Kentucky, but they got to beat Rice next week. Yeah, I'm going to start with the North Texas defense for a unit that we have talked a lot about over the past few years. This was kind of a regression back to the old mean green defense. A, a lot of run yards allowed, a lot of yards allowed overall. 234 through the air of Dylan Hopkins and 271 on the ground. You talked about Dwayne McBride, Jermaine Brown Jr., arguably the top one-two punch Amongst a group of five and running backs, 24 carries for a buck 50 and one score, and then Dwayne McBride with three touchdowns. UNT is not a team, Joe, that is designed to play from behind. That is the assessment that I have kind of come away with them this year. And Again, for listeners, they may roll their eyes and say, all right, well, what team is designed to play from behind? Fear, very fear. Um, but even when you look into you take into account the fact that they were able to score 21 points in the second quarter, it's just, you know, when you come out and then you allow the the opening 10 in the third quarter, it's just tough for the way their offense is. I mean, Austin Ani is a guy who 
while certainly in the conversation for Conference USA Offensive Player of the Year, I don't think he's going to throw for 350 yards each week, right? And it, it, they're very much a sum of all pieces run game, considering the fact that they've got some guys banged up. You know, right now it's like Kaka Ragsdale and Isaiah Johnson kind of toting the rock. You know, um, Oscar Attaway III looks like his season is done. Ayo Adehi, you'll have to see what's going to be his availability down the stretch as well. So in, in my mind, Joe, and I don't think I'm out of bounds in saying this, they're a team that uses the run to set up a lot of things for Austinani, especially with Austinani can, you know, make plays with his legs via as a rusher or use his legs to extend plays. I think we saw the best of that UNT offense, um, maybe a bit of an aberration against FIU. I don't think Austinani is going to throw again for, you know, something like almost 400 yards, but that's the way that they're designed to play for UAB. You talked about it. They're still alive in bowl contention. We definitely think that down the stretch, they're going to have a pretty good shot to get the six wins, but that run game, that is the that is the bread and butter for UAB and Bryant Vincent's uh, Bryant Vincent's club. So, great job to them, and we'll see how they fare down the stretch. Then we'll talk about the Shula Bowl, this game that you were in person for, as you usually are for FIU home games. The Owls win this one, fifty-two to seven. Um, I think if you're Florida Atlantic, you got to be thankful that you got this one and uh, picked up that fifth win heading into this uh, little bit tougher stretch of the season with Middle Tennessee in Murfreesboro and then a home game against Western Kentucky to close the season out. Uh, Nikosi Perry here, four touchdown passes, um, or rather four touchdowns accounted for, two through the air, two on the ground, uh, 14 of 21 for 104 yards in this game. And you also got to give it up to Larry McCammon. He's uh, had some some big games this year. This was certainly one of them. Uh, 26 carries for 104 yards as the Owls get up to 281 on the ground in this game. Uh, Willie Tiger Jr. as well got in a little bit at quarterback towards the end of this game. He ran a ball in for his, I believe, his first touchdown of the season, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, you know, got to be a proud pop on the sidelines there for the Owls. Yeah, Joe, really quick, you know, uh, FIU home games and road games. Don't short me there. If the Panthers, yeah. play, a game, if the, if the Panthers play a game in Zimbabwe, it would be me and Mike McIntyre postgame. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. I'm just messing with you. I, I don't have any Zimbabwe references in my pocket to pull out there. So you got me on that one. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. No, um, I, you know, it's actually, Joe, uh, for the timing, I should have went with Wakanda reference, but I digress. Um, sure. <laughs> here's here's the thing for FAU definitely got to be happy with this win Joe there was a lot of talk coming into this game not necessarily thinking that FAU would lose I think most FAU fans expect them to win but just how decisive would the win be because considering the fact that this is going to be the last Shula Bowl that these teams play in as far as being members of the same conference for foreseeable future obviously with FAU going to the American and the last one they're going to play until 2024. They're going to have to take next year off, again, with the team, uh, with the Owls leaving the conference. There was a feeling of wanting to be very emphatic. Um, this is the sixth straight win that FAU has over FIU. This Entering last week, I haven't crunched a number since, but entering uh, last week's contest, FAU had won the game over the past five years, five years by an average of 28.9 points per game. This obviously will increase that average. So I think you did a very fair job talking about some of the things that work for FAU. Larry McCammon really taking the bull by the horns and being that lead back. You know, Johnny Ford was the guy last year, but Larry McCammon getting that much closer to having his first thousand yard, um, thousand yard season. And that's something that Joe, I know I've talked about. He's someone who's been really besieged by injuries, you know, almost kind of got lost in the shuffle, uh, was playing a little bit of fullback uh, last year, but now seemingly has reestablished himself as a uh, uh, one of the top backs there for the Owls. And you talk about Nikosi Perry, a very efficient day. I think the big thing for FIU, Joe, when you throw an interception on the first play of the game that gets returned, uh, shot to Jalen Wester, the younger brother of Lejante Wester, actually three Westers all on the same team. So that's pretty ironic. But um, when you throw that pick and, and it gets returned to the FIU four-yard line, not the way you want to start the game. The Panthers have struggled. I actually just published a piece this morning on Underdog Dynasty about an hour before we started taping this show in specificity to the FIU struggles on early downs. The Panthers in their two-game win streak averaged, uh, look at it here, eight yards per play on first down in the two-game losing streak that they've had. 
to North Texas and to FAU, they have averaged 2.5 yards on first down. Uh, a lot of three and outs. I believe it's been 10 three and outs over the past um, two games, uh, 10 three and outs in the first half. They've gotten down early. And, you know, that's really harmed any chances of victory for them. That was the case last Saturday as the Owls take the Shula Bowl trophy back to Boca Raton for uh, usually you'll get a quote from whether it's Lane Kiffin or Willie Taggart about 365 days. Well, uh, multiply that times two. Because as I said, it's going to be two years until FIU can get a chance to compete for that title again. A few follow-up questions for you, Eric. First of all, has there been, uh, you know, significant conversation between the two schools about keeping that rivalry going? Um, you mentioned that they're going to play again in, in two years, but, you know, past that, it's going to take some effort to actually schedule it now. Yeah, Joe, they actually, and maybe we didn't talk about it on the podcast, they actually, I want to say in September, late September, FIU AD Scott Carr and F. A, okay, I think I said FAU, so let's try this again. FIUAD Scott Carr and FAUAD Brian White um, agreed to extend the matchup of the 2024 through 2027 four-game series as a non-conference game. So they've at least got four years squared away there. The future from beyond that, I mean, that will obviously depend on, um, you know, a, a merit of factors, but they've at least got that squared away there. And then you mentioned, you know, FIU playing, uh, you know, getting in holes early these last couple of games, 52 to seven, obviously in this one against the Owls. And then they did uh, a similar thing against North Texas a few weeks ago, uh, losing 52 to 14 there. Um, any comment on that from Mike McIntyre or, or any of the offensive players about maybe trying to figure out what's causing these slow starts on the offensive side? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have my direct quotes in front of me, but Mike McIntyre, you know, I the first question I, I asked him in the presser, Joe, I thought he made a good point. I, I asked him in specificity to the run game because I, mm-hmm. I, I'd have to pull the numbers here really quick. Let me go to my stat broadcast. I got it up. But uh, FIU, Joe, they rushed for 203 yards, right, uh, against FAU. So you look at it on the surface and say it's a respectable number. But if you pull out the chunk plays of 32 from Flex Joseph, which came in the second half when they were down, uh, they had a 28-yard run. That was the, the TD score by Grayson, but they were down 24-0 at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And you pull out the 14-yard uh uh, first down by EJ Wilson, right? That's quick math. I want to say it was like like 92, 93 yards, 94 yards is what it was. I remember now um, from that 203, right? So you pull that out and they got, they're left with what? Something like a uh, hundred and change or 90 something yards on 32 attempts. So the run game has really been an issue. And in specificity, as I talked about on early downs, Mike McIntyre, the good point that I thought he made was that you know, I think just traditionally speaking, you, you look to run the ball and establish things for your pass, and that's how you get it going. But if you take a look back, and again, uh, for anyone who's supremely interested, uh, you can take a look at that story that's published. They had a lot of success, Joe, against Charlotte and Louisiana Tech passing on first down. Um, again, look at the numbers. They averaged 9.9 yards per play against Charlotte. Uh, they had nine passes to five runs when they averaged six yards per play against Louisiana Tech, 20 passes to 10 runs, right? So I, I think for them, it's just a matter of generating some of the things they need to do as far as the bubble screens and the quick passing game. Tyrese Chambers, Joe, only, what, two grabs for 10 yards? That obviously isn't enough to cut it. So, no, he was very emphatic in the post game about finding a way, saying that, you know, it, it, their offensive uh, performance has been, quote, deplorable. Um, uh, I actually said both sides of the ball, but on offense, deplorable. So I have to find a way to get that going because as we talk about teams competing for a bowl game, they got two shots. You know, they're going to take on UTEP this week. And if they can get that win, then middle. So uh, one game at a time, but they got to get that fixed if they're going to have any shot. All right. As of Tuesday afternoon, big bit of news in CUSA, and that is that Charlotte seems to have found its next head coach, uh, Michigan's Biff Poggy. Looks like he's going to take the job at Charlotte uh, as uh, Will Healy was uh, fired a couple of months ago, and the 49ers are looking to move on. And we've already got an opinion piece up by our own Kevin Fielder on underdogdynasty.com if you want to check that out. Eric, for me, I mean, this is not a name that was really popping up in any of the, of the uh, discussions centered around this hire and, and who they could have gone after. But it seems like this guy has a lot of uh, endorsements coming from some pretty high up folks in the football world. 
course, Michigan fans know him as uh, Jim Harbaugh's kind of right hand guy, sort of the one in charge of a handling things while Harbaugh's, you know, out for whatever reason. And seems like he's he's done a big job in kind of rebuilding and reinforcing that culture in the last two years for the Wolverines. I kind of hate having to do the hot take initial take thing, Joe, but I got to be honest. After I asked myself, who the hell is Biff Poggy? um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I am always skeptical when you see high school coach to college coach. And yes, Biff Poggy has three seasons as a analyst at Michigan, right? For those of you who may not know, I'm going to assume just based on my um, response to who the hell is Biff Poggy, the majority of our audience doesn't know who this is either. A, his government name is Francis. So let's just clarify that right now. He is Francis <laughs> Poggy, very known as Biff. B, um, he coached in the Baltimore area, uh, coached at the Gilman School in uh, Baltimore County from doing my looking right here. 1988 to 2015 was the head coach for about two decades. And then went to Michigan for for a year in 2016. So obviously, Joe, I mean, it's a hell of a hell of a jump. I mean, someone who Jim Harbaugh had to have known about um, to go from you know high school to being an analyst on, on your program. Then left for uh, left for three years and went to St. Francis Academy, which is a program that I actually do know a little bit about because it is a um, it's one of the um, how do I say this, Joe? It's like one of the most like. Um, biggest largest black catholic um high schools in 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 the united states um so didn't know about them there uh had a a level of of success there and then went back to michigan from 2021 to 2022 so um joe this is this is what i've got you come off of will healy right and we know what for all of the you know marketer and motivator that will healy was there seemed to be some, I don't want to use the word deficiencies, but it, it didn't get it didn't get the job done on game days, right? Like outside of season one with guys like Alex Highsmith and Ben DeLuca and others who aren't walking through that door anymore, um, mm-hmm. didn't get the job done. This feels, not that I necessarily have an issue with Biff Poggy's resume. I, I, I will be curious to know what the Charlotte fan base and those of you, we got a fair amount of you who listen to this podcast, 1010 and others. What you make of this coming off of Will Healy, Joe, because for me, that is something that I think is interesting, right? Because for all intents and purposes, he's never been, I mean, I believe he was the associate head coach at Michigan. I got to go back and check that again. So he did, you know, at least have some greater responsibilities there. But this just feels like a lot for a first time hire or for for a first time head coach. Uh, someone who's heading to the American. I, I definitely want to get your thoughts, Joe, on not that we're going to age discriminate, but Biff Poggy's 63. Um, sure. Meaning, meaning essentially, if he has any desire, and I don't know Biff Poggy from a hole in the wall, clearly, but if he has any desire to coach at the Power Five level, he ain't long for this Charlotte job, right? Like, And that could be a good thing. Maybe that could be like, listen, man, I, I got four years here at Tops, so we got to get this thing going in a hurry. I don't know. But when you take a look at the resume, it just does leave me a little bit skeptical. I, I And maybe, maybe Joe, this is the fact, and I'll turn to you on this, that I covered him in FIU. Uh, I've seen what a experienced head coach can do. Mike McIntyre was not a popular hire when he was hired at FIU. But you have someone who has the experience of turning around two programs. At least that's someone who, you know, you got a little bit of a plug and play. Now, with that being said, again, Biff Poggy has been at Michigan, you know, he wasn't at, you know, Little Sisters of the Poor. So that'd be interesting to keep an eye on. But I got to admit, when you look look at the resume, it's it's a curious hire. Um, I know, again, Kevin said he felt like it's a they're swinging for the fences, home run hire, definitely out of left field. So we'll see what happens. Sure. First of all, anytime you you reference. Little Sisters the Poor, it it makes me laugh because it's such a like a Looney Tunes ass reference to like a fake school. <laughs> but uh, it, anyway, uh, yeah, I'll be honest. I didn't know about Biff Poggy um, until about a week ago or so either. Um, and I only knew about him because there was an article about him in The Athletic by Bruce Feldman that was uh, kind of interesting and just talking about, you know, his kind of roles behind the scenes in or at the Michigan football program, rather. Um, I didn't know about really his, his high school background, aside from kind of the schools that uh, that you mentioned, which are only kind of noted briefly in that article. As far as his, you know, potential for this Charlotte job, 
it could or could not be an overcorrection from Will Healy, given the age difference and the difference in experience. You know, Healy was an, an FCS guy who came in and kind of made that jump from FBS. You could argue that this is an even bigger jump for someone that was a head coach at the collegiate level and then um, was an associate head coach at uh, Michigan. Obviously, the two things not at all the same. But also, I think given someone like this, who's maybe a little more old school, maybe that that was something that the Charlotte hiring committee was uh, looking for. And, you know, frankly, we don't know the details of the contract yet. But that that's kind of my first thought is like, I wonder if this was just like a bargain they couldn't pass up, because I really thought they were at least going to wait until the end of the season to kind of see who was all on the market. But then again, I guess you kind of have to move fast if you find someone who makes the most sense. But yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of my thought is, I guess, if you're looking for a little more background, I highly recommend this article from Bruce Feldman, um, essentially talking about after the 2020 season where Michigan was uh, two and four, only played six games, really not looking great. Poggy was kind of a, a big reason of kind of how that culture in the locker room kind of shifted. And so even being 62, it seems like he's able to kind of, you know, still able to motivate folks and and still able to you know, be able to relate to 18, 19, 20, 21 year old players. So that's, that's a step in the right direction if you're Charlotte. Yeah. But I mean, as far as like leading a program and building a D one FBS program as the guy, we'll see. Uh, I'm not super concerned about the age. I mean, I think if you had asked me that question a couple of years ago, I absolutely would have said like, yeah, you, <laughs> why would we be hiring a 63 year old, you know, first time head coach, but I don't know. It could or could not be a good hire at this point. I think what we've seen out of Dan Dimble is a good start. Obviously, it, it's taken a minute to kind of get UTEP playing the way they were last year. Um, and they've had their moments this year as well. That, that's kind of my thought. It, it wouldn't have been my first choice, but I'm not convinced this is a terrible hire. I'm not convinced it's a great hire, but we'll see. Yeah, Joe, really quick. Again, just to make this clear in case it didn't come across, you know, I, I want the listeners to also know this as well. The reason I mentioned Biff Poggy's age is not that I think he's going to have an issue relating to players or anything like that. I mean, I actually think of the whole, you know, uh, and I've Joe, I said this years ago um, that being around Butch Davis for as many years as I was definitely kind of reshaped my conception of age. Right. And, and that's an entirely different discussion for you know another podcast, mm-hmm. um, not just age in terms of sports or in, in coaching age in general. Right. I think we tend, we tend to put people out to pasture way too early, but again, it, it, it wasn't um, because of that sense. It's just that if Biff Poggy has any desire to be a power five head coach in my mind, Joe at 62, 63. I mean, am I overstating it? Four years tops at Charlotte, maybe five. Is that fair? But then again, I think it's you one was something that's kind of been a larger trend in college football is just coaches realizing that like the P5 job isn't necessarily where you have to be in order to A, do what you want to do from a you know program building standpoint, and B, you know, be happy. You know, I, I think it's funny. Jamie Chadwell was actually talking about this a little bit in his media availability last week when folks were asking him about jumping to a power five job. And he's like, has anyone actually just considered that maybe I'm just happy here? And, you know, I think that's something that you can apply to a lot of scenarios. Um, so who knows? No, I mean, listen, it's a fair point, right? And for all, listen, we have not heard anything from Biff Poggy. Uh, I believe Will, uh, Will Healy, I believe Hunter Bailey, uh, Will Healy wouldn't say anything about the press conference. I believe Hunter Bailey said that there's a presser scheduled for him. I'm trying to do something on the fly here. Okay, well, he said, yeah, he actually didn't know his presser. He said that Mike Hill's going to address the team momentarily. So I guess but the point of me bringing that up is when we get to Biff Poggy, excuse me, get to Biff Poggy's presser, maybe he'll talk about the fact that, like, this is the spot for me. You know, we'll see. Um, but th- that's that's just – it's not the major concern for me, but it is a concern for me as I think about, you know, what the future can hold for this program immediately because I think the main thing they need as they enter the American is stability, right? They don't need another coach who – is going to come in there, have an entire shift in philosophy, shift in the way they do things, and then in four or five years, they're out. So um, we shall see. But all in all, I- I'd say uh, the verdict is is out on, on Biff Poggy, but we shall see what happens. Definitely interesting hire, no doubt about it. For sure. I guess I'm just kind of interested to see what a guy like this can do with, you know, his uh, with complete control over an FBS program, because it, it sure seems like when you look at the quotes from folks that have coached alongside him, 
uh, Mike McDonald, who's uh, the Baltimore Ravens defensive coordinator right now, for example, obviously Jim Harbaugh. Um, people think seem to think pretty highly of just his uh, his way of a approaching offensive football specifically, and just handling you know relationships and kind of not sugarcoating things. Um, I believe what is uh, what what was the exact quote here from was it Josh Gaddis? Um, Joe, not to while you're looking that up, I just want to interject one thing because I'm reading Hunter's story in the Observer right now. Yeah, because um, <laughs> I think it's the only reason I'm I'm cutting you off. Is I think it's pertinent to what I may have said about him wanting a Power Five job. Okay. This is a direct quote from Hunter's story: A million year hedge fund manager, Poggy poured thousands of dollars into the St. Francis Academy program. He helped launch in Baltimore. He even paid the salaries of his staff and underwrote housing and tuition wow. for multiple student athletes during his tenure. Now, I did know that he helped out at St. Francis. I did not know per Hunter's story that Biff Poggy is a apparently a millionaire and be a, a former hedge fund manager. I did know that he was an investment manager, not to that level hmm. of success. So anyhow, the point of that is saying maybe Biff Poggy ain't, ain't exactly looking for no, no payday uh, coming up soon. Yeah. seems like he's taken care of based on that information. And, you know, I think that's also just a kind of a common story in America in general, folks who, you know, make the money, early in life and then spend their later years doing the thing that they always actually wanted to do. And for him, it seems like it's coaching football and building programs. It's, <laughs> it's weird. Um, Mike McDonald that I mentioned the, the quote uh, from him in this, um, in this athletic article that I keep referencing is damn, this guy is the godfather. So it seems like he just, he just has this persona about him. Like I'm, I'm at, I have reached where I want to be in terms of the kind of work that I'm doing. And you know, maybe that'll translate into a successful rebuild of the Charlotte program. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, does it change my uh, reservations about the fact that he's only coach at the high school level, primarily coach at the high school level? No, but it provides a little more context for me as for as far as how a guy could go from Michigan as an analyst and then go back to like Baltimore County. Um, so that provides some context there. So. And also provides contact with, you know, him potentially wanting to leave for a, a, a higher paying job, which, again, seemingly old uh, Biff ain't hurting for bread. So we shall see uh, what the future holds. He's <laughs> got the keys to the bakery, you might say, to quote DJ Paul. <laughs> I'm, I'm, wow. Wow, Joe. It's only taken us five years, but I finally got one. <laughs> you finally got a reference. Finally, it's only taken us five years. I've been listening to Most Known Unknown a lot lately. That was a oh. fantastic album. Yeah. Huh, okay. All right. That I won't lie. That makes it for the fact that you did not know that Two Live Crew was from Miami and asked Scott, how come he didn't have Scott Carr? How come he didn't have any uh, Miami artists on his uh, top five? That totally makes it for it, Joe. All right. I'm back to zero. I'm going to, I'm going to pick my moments and I'm going to get back in the black on uh hip hop references for sure. I'm rooting for you. We are <laughs> as, as, uh, as Tyra would say. <laughs> Perfect. All right. That's a great place to end that. Last week, we were talking a bit about the CUSA media deal. Now that uh, the conference is going to get some Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday games on CBS Sports Network, as well as the ESPN family of networks, kind of following in the footsteps of the Mac and the Sun Belt. Uh, overall, I think I'm pretty happy about this step forward. It's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy about this for the conference. I think it's definitely a step forward. Uh, that being said, Eric, seems like the fan reaction is a little bit mixed here. Yeah, Joe, I mean, it's kind of interesting. And this is why I kind of want to bounce this off you a little bit. And this is not, you know, indicative of the entire Conference USA future um, future members or even present, right? But I had seen some chatter, you know, among some FIU fans, some Western fans, some Louisiana Tech fans talking about the fact that it's a midweek slate, right? So with that does present a certain amount of challenges in terms of getting to games. And I think it's a double-edged sword. One, you may lose some of that uh, traditional paying attendance, right? But I, I do think where you lose that, you have opportunities to pick up more student attendance, right? Especially for an FIU, which, listen, this is not my argument. It, I know, Joe, when I was in college, I had nothing better to do than go to a football game on a Saturday. Um right. 
but the uh, the the young folks down there in South Florida, you know, they're doing all the things that you can do on a Saturday in South Florida. That's not go to a football game. Right. So uh, I, I know to help attendance there, Joe. But I just kind of want to bounce it off you and get, get your thoughts. I mean, you know, both of us are kind of on the younger side of alumni things. So maybe for us, it, it's not as difficult. It wouldn't be as difficult to get to a game, um, you know working in sports notwithstanding it wouldn't be as difficult to get to a game but i'm just kind of curious your thoughts if you think that's a fair critique i mean i'm not by no means do i want to shade the folks in ruston louisiana because obviously you know they're still families and and obligations and same thing in bowling green Mm -hmm. um the only the only out i would give the folks in south florida is when you look at uh, put it to you this way It, it is virtually impossible emphasis on virtually impossible for a FIU alumni that is not live in Dade County to make a weekday game. If you're leaving work at five or five 30, right? Like it, trying to get from Fort Lauderdale to Miami uh, just on a Saturday is, is hell. So trying to do that on, on a weekday, like that's not going to happen. But outside of that, I don't see any reason why they can't, but just kind of curious your thoughts there. Sure. I mean, for one, I think Miami is kind of a unique market in that regard in terms of just the amplification of those, you know, traffic challenges that you mentioned, as well as kind of competing with other uh, things for young folks to do uh, there. Um, certainly not going to encounter the same extent of those things in some of the other markets in this league. But, you know, I think the big plus here is the national recognition I think you're going to get from uh, being able to see these games on national TV in the middle of the week, right? Like, you know, I think they're kind of thinking ahead in terms of trying to draw attention uh, from, you know, more out of state applicants and that sort of thing. I mean, like people on the West coast know, uh, you know, what the Mac is and what these schools are because they've been on national TV in the middle of the week for the last however many years and to a lesser extent, the Sun Belt as well. Um, so I mean, you know, I think in terms of getting to to games in the middle of the week and kind of dealing with some of those other obligations, I think you're always going to have, uh, you know, those sort of things. I mean, I'm sure there are, uh, you know, moms and dads out there who have to miss, uh, you know, certain uh, certain games every week, taking kids to to you know sports and that sort of thing. And you're going to kind of deal with the same thing uh, middle of the week on Tuesday. So, I mean, there's always going to be challenges. Um, If you're a student, you know, I think you'd be happy about this because it kind of frees up your Saturday to do other stuff. Um, And frankly, I mean, depends on who your professor is, but I mean, I think if, if you kind (laughs) of, if you have a cool professor, they'll be like, ah, you know, maybe I won't make assignments due the Wednesday after a football game. That kind of seems to make things a little bit easier, but I don't know. I think there's a unique set of challenges for both, um, for both strategies of playing games on Saturdays as is tradition or just playing in the, in the midweek. But I, you know, I don't see too many reasons to be upset about it personally. Yeah. I mean, I think you made a good point there as far as, you know, work being due and whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. Joe, really quick. How was it at Louisville uh, at UCF? Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, quick synopsis here. The the main tailgate area as far as students, it's this area called Memory Mall. And it, it's basically it's the it's a massive field, Joe, that you have CL1, CL2, uh, HPA. You got like four big classroom buildings that surround it. So like to try to get to the mass comms building, um, you'd have to go through memory mall. And it's also the gateway to get to the student union. So basically, and I don't know if it was this way prior to me going there, but they realized most instructors realize it's going to be of my benefit to cancel classes at at noon. Uh, So most instructors, if you had a class past noon or one or whatever, they were starting tailgate, it was just canceled because a, it was going to be hell to get to that class and B it was going to be hell to get out of there. And then also most of the, and again, this is for, for mid uh, midweek games. And then also a lot of the garages in that area were used for um, uh, football parking. So yeah. I'm just curious, how was it at Louisville? Because I just feel like maybe I, I'm spoiled or jaded by thinking that's just everyone's unique experience all the way across. 
Sure. I mean, you're asking about the the tailgating experience or like professors. Yeah, I'm asking if if professors slash the school just kind of, you know, gave a wink and a nod and said, all right, it's it's a midweek game. We're going to cancel this. Or even if I don't like (laughs) you ain't got to show up. Right. Um, When I was at Louisville, there weren't too many midweek games. Um, The the Big East wasn't uh, wasn't in there too much. the ones that that did, I will say, you know, because Louisville is the, you know, the basketball market that it is. Sure. I, obviously, the the basketball team had a lot of midweek games, and I, I distinctly remember a few separate times when um, there'd be, you know, big big games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, and I would have you know evening classes at those times, and they'd just be like. I'd get an email at like noon being like, let's be honest, none of you are coming in. Let's just, you know, read the chapter and let's reconvene next week, you know? So um, I think that kind of happens um, from time to time when you have like the, <clears throat> the schools with like the big athletic fan bases like UCF does and like Louisville does. Um, there's always going to be uh, certain, certain challenges to, to the midweek slate. But again, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of ran into it a few times teaching this semester where I, I thankfully, I mean, I just teach an online class. So I've just had to be like, uh, you know, Hey, if you think you're going to run into a scenario where you need more time, you got to let me know in advance. Um, so I, I, like, I try to, be, I try to be the cool professor that I was lucky enough to run into a few times in my undergrad. No, that all, that all makes sense. All right. Interesting slate this week for CUSA. Let's run through it. Rice hosting UTSA at 1 p.m. Eastern on ESPN plus UTSA minus 13 UTSA already have the, uh, the birth in this USA title game wrapped up as we know. I'd be surprised if they didn't win this game, even if they did decide to kind of limit the playing time of some of their bigger starters, which really there's no indication they they would have any reason to. Um, let's see if they jump out to a big lead before we kind of see if they do that. But uh, more talented team for sure, even playing uh, in Rice. Rice doesn't seem to have um, uh, too much of a home field advantage. You kind of go look at their last few uh home games and well i guess i mean if you look at their home games they have won every home game this year actually so they do have something of a home field advantage but at the same time utsa is a significantly better team so i think they'll have uh, a little trouble running into it and uh rice misses yet another chance to bowl uh secure bowl eligibility here yeah i agree with joe i just think utsa has too much to play for not that they don't have um you know, pretty much uh, what they need to lock up as far as getting to the uh, conference USA title game. But with that being said, I just still think you want to go into things on a positive note on a, uh, with positive momentum. So give me UTSA. And I think rice left to look towards the final week of the year to wrap up all eligibility. Then at three thirty Eastern on ESPN three, Charlotte hosting Louisiana tech uh, texters minus three in this one. I feel good about picking the bulldogs for the win here. Uh, ESPN FBI giving them a 59.2% chance and surprised. It is that close. Um, we'll see who starts at quarterback this game, but you know, we, if they can get the run game going, then I feel like they'll have a uh, little issue dealing with this, right? Uh, the Charlotte defense rather. That's um, uh, obviously, as we know, been having a lot of issues this year, stopping the run. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that these look, you got some, uh, some, some agreement there in the background as far as Charlotte stopping the run there, Joe. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm going to take the Niners. Uh, I just think, you know, a senior day, it's, it's a prideful group. It's a group that quite frankly, it, it kind of sucks to see them go out the way they, they will because a, a lot of talent from that roster is leaving, especially on the offensive side of the ball and B the bulk of the Niners, you know, success, um, will be leaving as well. Most of them will be Chris Reynolds. So uh, I think they'll want to go on a high note and give me the Niners. I think they'll find a way to get a win. Also at 3.30 on ESPN Plus, we got MTSU. Crunchy, really? <laughs> at 3.30 Eastern on ESPN Plus, we have FAU uh, taking a trip to Murfreesboro to play Middle Tennessee State. Owls minus six in this one. Both teams five and five looking to secure bowl eligibility here. Uh, as we kind of talked about, you never really know which MTSU team you're going to get, but based on what we've seen 
from FAU uh, these last few weeks, um, especially getting wins over UAB, uh, getting a win over UAB a couple of weeks ago, I got to feel pretty good about where they're at and especially where their offense is in terms of Nikosi Perry doing everything he can. He's he's looking like a real leader of this offense as we kind of thought he would at the beginning of the year. So give me the owls in this one. Which FAU team will show up? Will it be the team that fired on all cylinders against FIU? Will it be a team that has stumbled in the past, specifically at Floyd Stadium? Uh, they've had some some struggles there going to go, you know, two middle. Also playing against the Blue Raiders last year at, at FAU Stadium. That was a struggle. I, I'm going to take the Owls only because um, we'll have to see what the quarterback situation is. I'm not sure if I think Nick Vadiato is going to be able to get the job done. Um, you know, Middle Tennessee, again, as a team that now if they can get the run game going, and that's a big if, because I, I tell you firsthand, Evan Anderson is back, sir. He is back in a big way. I was making a lot of plays in that defensive line. Jalen Wester uh, as well, you know, stepping up there uh, with Eddie Williams injury. He was out for the rest of the year. It's going to be a challenge. But this is always a dangerous game for the Owls. So um, give me FAU, but you know, definitely want to keep an eye on that one. If we didn't mention uh, towards the beginning of the show, uh, Chase Cunningham out with uh, an injury at the moment and uh, looking unlikely that he is going to come back for this game. But we'll certainly see and keep an eye on that as uh, the week progresses here. Moving into this Western Kentucky matchup in Auburn, Alabama against the uh, Tigers or the War Eagles, whatever their mascot is. Confusing branding. Um, (laughs) SEC Network for this one. uh, Auburn minus five and a half. I'm picking Western for the upset. I think their passing attack uh, has the ability to kind of jump out to this early lead. Auburn's been real iffy. They're four and six this year. Crunchy. Thank you. Uh, damn it, really? <laughs> You're such a little troll. Um, Auburn's four and six. Uh, they do have a real good running back in Tank Bigsby, so I think Western Kentucky's run defense is going to have to play one of their better contests of the year, but I really like Western for the upset. I am torn on this one because I, I look at Auburn, obviously not having the greatest year, but Joe, I do think there is something to be said, and this could go both ways. The emotion of playing for Coach Cadillac, and Joe, I have never felt older saying Coach Cadillac Williams, but I digress. The emotion of playing for uh, Carnell Cadillac Williams, we saw that come out last week, right? Uh, a huge win for Auburn. Now, with that being said, is that something that carries over into this week, or is it something that they're so emotionally drained and they're going to have to face, they got to, got to get up for a Western Kentucky offense that we know can score some points. That's going to kind of be the double-edged sword for me. I'm leaning towards taking Auburn and I think I am going to take Auburn, but it, it would not shock me if Tyson Hilton's club comes out of Auburn, Alabama with a win. Would be a huge uh, feat for them. It's uh, it's been a minute since we saw the top speed in SEC team and the uh, when they do have the opportunity to do that, it produces some wonderful memes, which we didn't talk about the incredible helmets that Western wore. And I'd be ashamed of myself if we didn't at least mention those. The big red helmets, Eric, what's your thought? Best helmet or best helmet? <laughs> I'll say this. You know how I feel about big red. However, the helmet itself not a huge fan. That just goes with my feelings about Big Red. With that being said, I got to give the Western Kentucky social team a, a huge shout out, a lot of credit. Joe, I thought the videos have been phenomenal specifically, and I know you saw the one where Big Red is, uh, and crap, who is it, Joe? Is it, I, ah, I'm forgetting now. Is it Jaden Hunter? Is is that the player who's uh, who's training with Big Red, trying to get him like pumped up so that he can get back on the helmet. And then they put, they, they realize like, yo, all you gotta do is go talk to the equipment guy. Oh, I wish I could remember. Uh, the player. I want, I want to say it's Jaden Hunter. Who's a defensive player who's pumping him up. I want to say it is. I think you're right. I, I remember him. I, the one that's freshest in my mind is when he marches into president Caboni's office and Caboni's like, well, we got to fix this right now. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> shout out to the social team. Great job with those bids, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. All right, and then to uh, continue things at 1 p.m., or rather at 4 p.m. Eastern, we have ESPN Plus 
playing the UTEP versus FIU game in El Paso. Minor is minus 14 in this one. Battle of four and six squads. Uh, you know, this is going to be real fascinating to see who stays alive in the hunt for a bowl game. Uh, ESPN FBI giving UTEP an 89.2% chance, which I can see, but given that, that UTEP is kind of coming off some disappointing performances against rice and UTEP, uh, it's going to be, it's another one of those things, which UTEP team are we going to get? Um, if they can kind of control the clock and, and do what we know, is kind of best for their offense and set up those deep throws by Gavin Hardison, then I think that's uh, that's certainly a step in the right direction. But uh, FIU, we've seen some good things from them this year, but uh, seem to have uh, struggled against teams from the, the state of Texas this year. Yeah, Joe, uh, this one definitely, of course, I will be out at that game, making the trip out to El Paso on Thursday. Uh, quick, uh, cheap plug here. You can probably hear me or not. Probably you will hear me on Friday, ESPN 600 El Paso. My guys, uh, friend of the show, Adrian Broadus, Steve Kalpowitz, get a chance to hop on in studio with those guys. So, uh, that should be fun, but yeah, Joe, I'll say this. You're, I think you hit the nail on the head when it comes to UTEP, right? In terms of they've been such an inconsistent team this year. I mean, really from the start of the year, and I don't know if you caught this. I don't think we talked about it, um, earlier, but uh, again, shout out to Adrian. He tweeted out that uh, Coach Dana Dimmel talked about the fact that uh, Gavin Harson's availability is one that's going to be it's going to depend on you know how things fare later in the week. So we could see Calvin Brownholtz. That will be a huge shift in the offense. Calvin Brownholtz is very much more of a rusher compared to Gavin Hardison, who's going to look to make plays with his arm. It, either way, it's been a very up and down, inconsistent year. I am looking to the UTEP run game and the UTEP defensive line. Um, praise Amahule, Jadrian Taylor, and uh, Cal. I'm um, forgetting Cal's last name, Joe. Um, me can help me out here as I talk about what FIE will need to win this game. Uh, the linebacker for UTEP um, who was leading the team in sacks, I want to say, or second team in sacks. I want to see he has some like seven or eight sacks on the year. Cal Hollerstead, I believe his last name is. But nevertheless, how will the FIU offensive line fare against a very formidable defensive front? They already banged up. They lost Jacob Peace last week. Um, they've had some guys, you know, Ray Burnett left the program. Uh, Julius Pearson banged up a little bit. So how will that FIU offensive line fare? You talk about the fact that ESPN gives, excuse me, ESPN gives uh, FIU 89% chance to uh, win that game. Uh, excuse me, it gives UTEP an 89% chance to win that game. FIU AD Scott Carr, known for his screenshot of the uh, ESPN be an FPI uh, indicator before the game after uh, when, when FIU upsets. Um, will he have that opportunity this week? We will see. Uh, naturally, I would lean towards FIU in this game because I think they've played their best football A on the road and B when not much has been expected of them. But Adrian, uh, uh, Jadrian Taylor, praise Amahule, you know, that entire UTEP defense. Joe, very sneakily, one of the top, uh, I believe they're ranked third in total defense in Conference USA. So that's going to be a tough ask and going to be a tough t- a tough um, defense for FIU to fix their, their offensive struggles against. So I'm leaning towards UTEP in this game. Yeah, and you mentioned Cal Wallerstadt. I mean, the Harrisburg, North Carolina native. I mean, he's stepped up in a big way. He's uh, leading up, the, I, as you said, he's leading the team in uh, six with six and a half sacks. Redshirt Jr., uh, I believe he's a former walk-on as well um, and has really kind of stepped up as, uh, you know, coming in and, and kind of bolstering the depth there um, for, for what UTEP has needed these last several weeks here. As we know, they've kind of had some issues uh, with injuries to their linebacking core as well as some other kind of, uh, you know, ineligibility issues on the front seven and 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 that sort of thing. But – I think I'm picking UTEP as well. I think I already said that. And it's interesting. We're just going to miss each other, Eric. I'm going to be in uh, New Mexico to visit some friends for uh, Thanksgiving. And I'm going to get there like a day and a half after you leave, probably, unfortunately. Oh, man. Just uh, just missing each other. Yeah, I know. But uh, we're going to go to Roswell and I'm going to learn about aliens. So it's going to be a great day. (laughs) (laughs) And then to close things out, uh, we have number seven LSU hosting UAB at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2. LSU minus 14 and a half. Uh, 
first of all, I, I see no reason LSU won't win this game. They've been uh, really stellar this year, certainly still in contention for that SEC title um, with two games left to go. Or I'm, I'm sorry, they've already secured an SEC title spot. Look at that against the number one Georgia Bulldogs in a few weeks here. But it's with, with UAB, you know, I, I think you come out and just kind of show what you can do against a top 10 team. I, I'm, I'm not expecting much. I think you got to keep folks healthy for these last, uh, for that last game to wrap bowl eligibility up. You get, that's your last chance in a couple of weeks there. Um, and with LSU, I can't remember a time where I've seen a team itself in terms of the players that are so likable with a coach that's so hard to like with <laughs> Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly's hard to like for for you, Joe. Yes. <laughs> um, had to keep right. myself had to keep myself from like smashing the cup in my hand. <laughs> uh, I'll say this. I mean, I, obviously, I'm, I, I I do think LSU is going to win this game. It's no slight on UAB. I think UAB teams of the past would have had a much stronger shot. But this is an LSU team that's surging. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head for much everything you said there. It's a team, as you mentioned, uh, locked up a spot in the SEC title game. Definitely has a lot they're playing for. I mean, look at a shot the college football playoff, and they cannot afford to slip up against UAB. So I will be taking the Tigers. There we go. That concludes our week 11 CUSA preview. Only got a few more weeks of the regular season here, and then we'll get into CUSA championship game and the Bulls and all that good stuff. We're not going anywhere anytime soon. We do one of these every week. If you're not already subscribed on Apple, go ahead and do that. That way it gets sent right to your mobile device. What a world we live in. And uh, then you can check it out on Spotify as well if that's your preferred platform of choice. Leave a review. helps the show grow. Um, thanks again to Kevin Fielder for filling in, for filling in last week. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And, of course, at Underdog Dynasty for G5 football content every single day. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.